Romans chapter 15, we're picking up again. In the book of Romans, we're in this extended section of the book where the Apostle Paul is laying out to the church his priorities and his plans. And we're working through these verses kind of sequentially, as we always do. But I'm kind of jumping around in them as we go. And we're going to focus on just a portion of this extended paragraph to talk about the subject of miracles. And I want you to notice what it says in this text in Romans 15. In verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness. You are filled with all knowledge. You are able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ to all the nations in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the nations of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And then this pivotal verse that really is the verse around which this entire section kind of works and hinges. He says, in Christ Jesus then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations to obedience. Then notice these three phrases. By word and deed. By the power of signs and wonders. By the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and in this circuit all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I would build on someone else's foundation. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we confess before you that you are God alone. That you are the only God and that you cannot be confined to an image made like an animal or a beast, creeping thing. Lord, we understand that it is in your image that the fullness of the Godhead has been revealed to us. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are God alone. That you are a powerful God. Father, we acknowledge before you that you parted the Red Sea that you sent plagues upon Egypt, that you made the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. That, Lord, you took loaves and fishes and you broke them and you fed the multitude. 
acknowledge before you that you are a God of might and wonder. As we think of that today, I pray that, Lord, your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that you would illuminate our lives and our thinking, and that you would instruct our faith. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice with me, as we look at this verse, I really want to focus in on verse 18. When the Apostle Paul says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the nations to obedience. And then these three phrases, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. I want you to notice he is here talking about what Christ had accomplished through him. And I want you to notice that, first of all, he asserts here at the end of this verse when he says, so from Jerusalem Jerusalem to Yugoslavia, that's Illyricum, in a circuit, he said, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. That's a region of some 1,400 miles We talked about this a couple weeks ago where the Apostle Paul had no modern mode of transportation, communication, or any of those things. And yet in that large a region, Paul could assert and boldly say, in that region, I have fulfilled the ministry that the Lord has given me. That's his assertion. His goal is to bring the nations to obedience. Now, whenever you see the word Gentiles, we use that word all the time, and it's kind of almost anachronistic to us sometimes, but really the Greek word for Gentiles, you have Gentile and Jew, really the word Gentile, you could easily just translate it, the word means the nations. And so Paul's goal is to bring all the nations to obedience. That's an interesting thing. He doesn't say his goal is to bring them to faith. He says his goal is to bring them to obedience. In other words, the obedience of faith. Yes, we are justified by grace through faith, but the end result of our justification is what? How do do we know that someone has been justified? What is the fruit of that in their life? It is the fruit of obedience, a walk that glorifies God by obeying what he has given us. And so Paul's goal is an obedient faith. He wants to see the nations come to a place where as they have heard about Jesus Christ and they have embraced the message of the gospel, those individuals and those churches are conforming themselves to the will of God. And they are living in obedience unto Him. And so Paul's goal is to bring the nations to obedience. That is his goal. The means by which he accomplishes this are threefold. He gives them to us in these three phrases. First of all, what he says, and secondly, what he does. The first means by which Paul is accomplishing this goal of fulfilling his ministry by bringing the nations to obedience is Paul is looking at his life, and he is saying, everything that I say and everything that I do. 
should be so in conformity to the will of God under the lordship of Christ that God uses it to fulfill his goal. So Paul's life is governed by the lordship of Christ. What he says, what he does. How about us? Is our life lived under the lordship of Christ in such a way that we can really say that the Lord is using not only what I say, but also what I am doing to fulfill a ministry and to bring others to an obedient faith? Paul could assert that. Paul's means is what he says and what he does. And then he says, by the power of signs and wonders. And then he says, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, these two are not acting merely as synonymous. He's not saying that the power of signs and wonders is the same as the power of the Holy Spirit. Although clearly the power to work signs and wonders comes from the Holy Spirit. But here, when he talks about the power of the Holy Spirit, he is just saying that anything that is accomplished for the kingdom and for the glory of God has to be done by and through the power of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit doesn't bless it, nothing happens. The Holy Spirit is the one who does the greatest miracle of all. What is the greatest miracle of all? It is when a dead soul breathes life in Christ and is born again. That is the greatest miracle that God performs. That is why it says in Romans chapter 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the miracle of God to salvation to everyone who believes. It is God's greatest miracle. So the power of the Holy Spirit, that is evidenced by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. When all of a sudden an individual falls under conviction. You go to church all your life. You warm the same pew. Life is good. And all of a sudden something happens in your heart that is unaccountable. Maybe it was when you were a child. Maybe it was when you were an adult. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit convicts you. And everything you hear starts to resonate in a different way. And you begin to realize, if I don't get this thing right, I'm going to burn in hell. And I'm a sinner. And I'm lost. And I'm in trouble. And it becomes real. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. No one can produce that in the heart of a human. Only God can. And then the Holy Spirit quickens. He regenerates. A person is born again. None of that can be accomplished or engineered by human effort. It's God and God alone. I want to think, though, about this second one today, the power of signs and wonders. Why is it important 
that we think clearly, biblically, about miracles. When we think about miracles and the subject of miracles, why is it important we think about this and we get it right? I just want to have you think about a couple things. First one is because in our world today, in America today, there is this thing out there called the prosperity gospel. And I want to talk about it for just a minute. This is not a sermon on the prosperity gospel, but I want to just talk about it for a minute. What is the prosperity gospel? There are a couple of things that, I guess you would say, characterize this message that is out there in the world today. In the prosperity gospel, you will see that there is a message from pulpits, from the radio, from the dish, from the internet, that will downplay the role of suffering in the Christian life. It will downplay it. You will also see that it will emphasize a certain aspect of the message of God's Word, and that message will be a health and wealth type of message. It's called the Word of Faith Movement by another name. John Piper identifies six marks of the prosperity gospel. I'll go through them real quick. One, the absence of a serious doctrine of the biblical necessity and, notice that word, normalcy of suffering. So in these pulpits, from these pulpits, from these churches, comes a message (coughs) that basically says, Suffering is never in the will of God. And if you suffer, it is because you don't have enough faith. And it will downplay that. It will downplay the essential element in the Scripture that God uses suffering as a part of His directive will. He uses it. Secondly, the absence of a clear and prominent doctrine of self-denial. If any man will come after me, he must do what? Go and buy a new Lamborghini and get it all. No, he must what? Deny himself. Do what? Take up his cross and follow me. The absence of a serious exposition of Scripture, you will see a lot of cherry-picking You will also see an absence of dealing with tension in Scripture. The dual nature of teaching in God's Word. Many times on many of these messages, you will see church leaders many times who are living exorbitant lifestyles, and you will see a prominence of self and a downplaying or a marginalization of the greatness of God. That's all we're going to say about the prosperity gospel today. What I want to talk about is this. There is a tension. There is absolutely no way. There is absolutely no way. If you pick up the Bible and you read it, if you read the Gospels and you read the book of Acts, there is no way you can read the Bible and not conclude that signs, miracles, wonders were an evidence, an evidence-based confirmation that accompanied the ministries of Jesus and his early followers. You cannot read the Gospels 
You cannot read the book of Acts and not come to terms with the reality that Jesus Christ was a miracle-working person. So the question is, what are subsequent generations of Christ followers to expect? This is what Jesus did. This is what his apostles did. What does that look like for us today? That's what we're looking at today. Now let's talk about these three things. There are three words here. Notice with me the word miracles, the word signs, and the word wonders. Many times in the New Testament you will see those three words coupled together to describe what we're talking about. So in this passage, notice with me, he says, by the power, that is the Greek word dunamis, the dynamite. That is the word that is translated miracle. It's a powerful working. By the miracle, by the power of signs and wonders. Those three words put together to describe what we're talking about. Three words describing one event. So in other words, when Jesus was on the mountain outside of the, by the Sea of Galilee, and, and he calls his disciples, and he says to his disciples, feed the multitude. And they say, what? How are we going to do that? There is a lad here, Andrew says, who's got a lunch. What's that among so many? What did Jesus say? Bring it to me. What did he do with it? He blessed it. Then what did he do with it? He broke it. And then what did he do with it? He fed the multitude. Let me just suggest something to you. The blessing of God brings brokenness. And through that brokenness, God feeds the multitudes. That is a biblical doctrine of suffering. When God blesses, it does not mean everything is always good. When the Lord blesses, you know what he often does? He breaks. And from that brokenness, he feeds. That's a biblical doctrine of suffering. That event, when Jesus feeds the multitude, describes, three words describe that one event. It was a miracle that was a sign that brought wonder. Now, here's what it is. Dunamis. A miracle, the word dunamis means power. In a miracle, God is demonstrating his power. He is omnipotent. When God says to the prophet, go and tell Hezekiah you're going to live, and he moves the sundial back, that wasn't like me going to my wife's uh, clock on the wall and just moving the hand back. I can do that one. 
but I cannot move a shadow. Not in reverse, for sure. God did it. You can't fake that one. A miracle demonstrates God's power. Secondly, it is a sameon, which is it is a sign. This tells us why God does a miracle. The purpose of a miracle is to confirm. It is a sign. So all through the Old Testament, God said when the Messiah comes, he will do certain things. And when Jesus made the deaf to hear, the lame to walk, the blind to see, it was a revelation of his power, but in a deeper way, it demonstrated something. It was a confirmation that Jesus was the Messiah. It confirmed it. Third thing is, it is a terrace or a wonder. You can see the Greek word terrace there, and you can see we get an English word from it. It is a terror. In other words, a miracle demonstrates the power of God, it confirms the word of God, and it produces something in those who see it. What is it? Awe. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. It produces wonder. It produces amazement. So these three words, when you see those words, think of them this way. A miracle, this event, is something that demonstrates God's power, that confirms His word, and produces amazement. That is why the whole crowd saw Jesus feed them from a boy's lunch, and they were what? Amazed. They couldn't believe what just happened. In John 20, verse 30 and 31, it says at the end of the book of John, Jesus performed many other signs. He did so in the presence of his disciples, And many of them are not written in the book. But John says this, these ones were written down so that you might what? Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And by believing, you will have what? Life in his name. So, these signs that we have in the New Testament were handpicked by the Spirit of God to be written down and preserved for us so that as we read these stories, the Word of God is confirmed in such a way that we read these things that God has done. And we believe. The Holy Spirit uses them to produce in us a faith that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And we have life in His name. Now, there are two things that are linked in what God does. Sometimes we talk about acts of providence and sometimes we talk about miracles. Let's talk about providence real quickly this morning. Providence is a town in Rhode Island, but it's more than that. (laughs) I think it's in Rhode Island. Did I get that one right from my geography? Never been there. When we talk about God's providence, his providential care, we are talking about the fact that God governs all events. 
to fulfill his most wise and holy plans. He governs everything. Not a sparrow falls, but he takes note of it. Not a hair falls from your head. And he had to keep busy with me on that one. <laughs> God governs all events, fulfilling his most wise and holy plans. So that we can realize that God most often directs events through the use of just ordinary natural causes and effects. So in that way, we can boldly say, in our life, you know, sometimes we think about luck or we talk about chance. That was just a lucky strike or whatever. But really, we understand clearly from the Bible that the dice is cast on the table, but the disposing of it is of the Lord. So when the lot falls to Jonah, that was God. It was providence. It was providence that caused that event to happen. In this, bowl, in this way, we can assert that there are truly no chance events. You look at your life, you remember events, and you think about things that have happened, that when it's over and you're still alive, you're like, I can't believe that just happened. What happened? Holy cow. One miracle, it was what? Just providence. It was real. It was God intervening. But it wasn't a miracle, it was providence. So, when we think about providence, it's like this. When God parted the Red Sea, it was not an act of providence, it was a miracle. Because that don't normally happen, right? Red Seas don't normally part. However, when the clouds rolled in over the beaches of Dunkirk and allowed the British fleet and all those other little boats that show up to transport the British army from the beaches of Dunkirk back home to England under, under the cover of clouds. So Hitler's army was grounded, his, his, his air force is grounded. That wasn't a miracle. That was just what? Providence. Because God was just directing events so that he caused the clouds to move in there, but he was using natural causes and effects. That's what providence is. Many times when God intervenes in our life, he does so in a providential way. Now, when we think about a miracle, we're talking about these kind of things. At times, God intervenes into his creation to perform his will by circumventing the natural created order. And he works in a what? Super. Think of a supermarket, a market that is super. It is above the normal. The word super means above. So a market that is super, a supermarket is a market that is a cut above. And when we think about this, what we're thinking about is many times God works in a natural way, but sometimes he does so in a supernatural, above the natural way. He circumvents the natural created order to perform his will in order to show that he is a God of power to confirm his word and to produce what? Amazement. Those three things go together in what we're talking about. So sometimes God performs miracles through a human agent. Moses, Elijah, Elisha. Jesus, the apostles, we could think of many, and you will also notice that miracles characterize the ministry of the Messiah and his apostles. They weren't fake miracles. They weren't for money. 
They weren't to tantalize people's fancy. Nevertheless, they characterized what he did. When Jesus went about the cities of Galilee, he healed their sick. He cleansed their lepers. They were characteristic. I want you to understand a key distinction. This is really quick. When we think about interpreting the Scripture, there are two things we have to understand. One is there are some things in the Bible that are normative and there are some things that are descriptive. There are some things that we would say are normative in the sense that they become prescriptive to us. Sorry, that's really sloppy. Prescriptive means something that is prescribed. Normal means it is the ordinary course of events. There are some things in the Bible that are normative for the church. There are some things that are descriptive of events and teach us things, but are not necessarily saying these are normative for all of church history. Having said that, let's go a little bit deeper in our thinking. There's a guy named Donald Gee who is a theologian with the Assemblies of God. I use Donald Gee here because he is a man from a charismatic Pentecostal leaning, not leaning, embrace. And yet he can look at many of the things that are happening in that movement, and he says many of our errors where spiritual gifts are concerned arise when we want that which is extraordinary. In other words, it's not normative. When we want that which is extraordinary to be made frequent and habitual. That's Donald Gee. Jesus many times ran up against people who demanded of him a miracle, sometimes for very dubious reasons. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says of the Jews, they demand a sign. They demand a sign. The key word here is this. And I want you to think about some things in this regard as we think and study this this morning. In Matthew chapter 12 and chapter 16 and Mark chapter 8 and Luke chapter 11, Jesus says to his people, by the way, that's pretty frequently repeated, so I think God wants us to get this, right? This isn't, anything God says one time in the Bible is important, but when you get it repeated this much, I think God wants us to sit up and take note here. An evil, an adulterous generation is seeking for a sign. And then what did he say to them? No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. So every time we seek for a sign, does that tell us that we are evil and adulterous? Was Gideon? Gideon put out a fleece and God blessed it. 
Remember when John Piper talked about tension in the scripture? That's the kind of thing we're thinking about here. Why does Jesus say to these people, your desire for a sign is evil and adulterous? And then at other times, Jesus blesses the sincere request of an individual in need. Where's the difference? One thing I want you to think about. God is not a genie in a bottle to obey all our whims and to meet all our desires. Don't ever think that just... I'm dealing with tension here. Jesus said in his word to pray in his name. But praying in Jesus' name is not like just rubbing that lamp just right. Since I'm saying this in Jesus' name, God's going to do just what I want. Don't believe that lie. That comes from the pit of hell. God is not a genie. In Luke 23, Pilate is trying to deal with, a, with an issue and he doesn't want to have to deal with it and that is all the Jews are saying about Jesus, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate does not want to crucify him. He's looking for an out. He hears that Herod is in town and that Jesus is from Galilee. He sends Jesus to Herod. And Herod is sitting on his throne going, ha, 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 I've always wanted to see this dude do a miracle. When Jesus stands in front of him, Jesus doesn't even talk to him. He has nothing to say. And Herod is disgusted and sends him back to Pilate. That is instructive. Simon the Magician in Acts chapter 8 and John 6, the loaves and the fishes. The crowd sees what Jesus can do and they say, our king is here. He's going to feed us and we're going to have circuses. I mean, everything is good. And Jesus is done with the crowd and he preaches a sermon to them and by the end of that sermon, everybody deserts him and Jesus looks at the twelve and he says to you, to them, are you going to go away too? Are you going to go away too? And Peter says, we don't know what you mean by what you just said. But where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And they stay with him. But everybody else left. He run them off. Why? Because of their motive. Now, let's look real quickly at Hebrews chapter 2. We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away from it. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding, and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how can we escape? If we neglect such a great salvation, and then he says this, and I want you to notice this verse, this is what I want to look at. This salvation was first spoken by the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard him. And God, at that same time, was testifying by signs and wonders and miracles, distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit. Notice this phrase. According to what? His will. 
So, let's analyze this real quickly. Number one, miracles are done according to his will, his sovereign purpose. Paul could not perform miracles just whenever he wanted. Paul has a thorn in the flesh. Man, if you were a miracle-working man, we'd take that one away, wouldn't you? Could he? No. Three times he asked the Lord. Three times the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. One of Paul's close associates in Philippians chapter 2 was close to death. His name was Epaphroditus. Paul didn't heal him. Paul couldn't heal him. Why? According to his will. Paul and the apostles could not just do a miracle whenever they wanted to. They did miracles when the Holy Spirit came upon them in such a way that they knew they had to. It was not from them. It was according to his will. Secondly, miracles' purpose, it was confirmed to us. Just like what we were talking about. There was a confirmation in a miracle. So it is a sign Now, God loves to confirm His Word in accordance to His sovereign plan to undergird the faith of His children and to put His glory on display. We see that in His Word. He loves to confirm His Word. And He does so in accordance with His plan. He does so to build faith and to put His glory on display. So the conclusion is, does God do miracles? Yes, he does. Let's think about it. When God does a miracle, it is according to his sovereign will. When God does a miracle, it is to confirm his word. And when God does a miracle, it is to create awe or wonder and to put his glory on display. It is not to satisfy our flesh. It is for these reasons. So, miracles are not a normative gift in the church. I want you to write that one down in your thinking. When you become a member of this church, we expect you to use your gift here. It may be teaching. It may be exhortation. It may be a long list of things that we study in the book of Romans. If you come to me and you say, I have the gift of miracles, I'm going to say, would you go to the church down the road? (laughs) It's not a normative gift. When someone is sick in the church age, what is the normative practice for the church to do in James 5? Call for the elders of the church. They are to anoint him with oil and to pray over him. Elders is plural. The power to heal is not vested in one individual with that gift. In a plurality of eldership, there is prayer because there is power. When two or three gather in the name of Jesus, he is there. But even then, those elders cannot demand. It is in what? 
accordance with what? His will. Miracles are not a normative gift in the church age. However, they are a special act of God's redemptive grace where he acts in accordance to his will to display his glory. My goodness, I am not going to make our God a small God to you. God can do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. And he will do so. They are a special act of God's redemption. Are they to be sought? I think this is relevant for us to ask this morning. Because there's a lot of people here who are broken. Some of you have loved ones who have cancer. And you pray and you pray and you pray. You want God to do a miracle. Sometimes the heavens seem like brass. Are they to be sought? Let's think about this just for a minute. As we pray in Jesus' name believing, and yet submitting to our Father's will, God's children should expect him to powerfully intervene in our lives. But to always do so in accordance with his will. I can, I, you know, I could tell you stories today where God, I know, intervened in my life in a powerful way to confirm his word, to give me all. I can remember a time when I was in college. I was struggling. I was raised in a Christian home, and yet I was like, God, are you even real? I remember going and getting on my knees before God and praying and saying, God, if you are real, show yourself to me. And I went to my dorm room. I walked in my dorm room, and the phone rang. And I picked it up. And it was a man who was calling me who I had never met who said, would you come and talk to me because I want to talk to you about the Lord. Listen, I don't remember anything that man said to me because none of it was new. That wasn't why God did it. What I remember about that event is this. I prayed and Jesus answered. And no one can tell me That was not a miracle. It confirmed that God is who he is, and I was never the same. There's a woman of faith named Amy Carmichael. Many of you know who she is, was. Tremendous woman of faith. She she really lives on in her poems. She went to India as a young woman, devoted her life to the temple prostitutes of all the Hindu gods, bringing them into an orphanage. She called it Donover Fellowship. She gave her life for those orphans in India. She's known for her poems. One of her poems that is dear to me is called Hast Thou No Scar. It says this, Hast Thou No Scar? 
no hidden scar on foot or side or hand. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Hast thou no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yes, yet I was wounded by the archer spent, leaned me against a wall to die and rent by ravening beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Hast thou no wound? No wound? No scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound? No scar. She was a young woman, a young girl. She had heard about the power of Jesus, that he could do anything. There was one thing she truly hated about herself, and it was that she had brown eyes. Blue eyes were the thing, and they didn't make contact lenses then to change them. Jesus can do anything. Surely, he can give me blue eyes. And so she went to bed and she prayed. Lord, give me blue eyes. She woke the next morning and rushed to the mirror. And her eyes were brown. She wrote a poem that gives the story. The poem is called No. It says this. Where, oh, where could the blue eyes be? Not there. Jesus hadn't answered, hadn't answered her at all. Nevermore would she pray. Her eyes were brown as before. Did a little soft wind blow? Come a little whisper, soft and low. Jesus answered. He said no. That no taught her more about God than would have a yes. And thus it is with our God. Father, we come before you today. We come as needy people. I think every person that's in this room has something going on in their life that they don't like. Some mountain that's too big, some river that's too wide, some hill they cannot climb. Oh, Lord, I thank You that sometimes to confirm Your Word, You in a mighty act of Your might display Your glory by changing things. And yet sometimes, Lord, our eyes are brown. 
and we get frustrated and we doubt you and we say, never more will I pray. My eyes are brown just like before. And Lord, it is at that moment that we pray that the power of the Holy Spirit would so teach us that this gift that you have given, this faith that we possess, is not just about making us wealthy and healthy and happy. It is about bringing the nations to obedience. May that be true with us. Dismiss us with your love as we sing. And may these words, your word, be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. In Jesus' name.